Welcome to Trial and Medical Error, where we bridge the gap between medicine and law and unlock groundbreaking trial techniques. Join hosts Brendan Lupitan and Greg Uniton as they share novel insights and strategies to help you confidently tackle the most complicated cases. Welcome back to Trial and Medical Error. So in today's podcast, we're going to discuss good old reptile. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about reptile over the next several episodes and the extent to which a lot of the theories and thoughts that have been espoused by Don Keenan and at times back in the day, David Ball and all the different disciples and descendants of reptile, which is now Edge, and how it fits into different aspects of our trial practice. So today we're going to focus on the use of rules, how we use rules specifically in medical malpractice cases, because I think they have a different place in different types of cases, but we're going to focus on the use of them in med mal cases, and we're going to cover the idea of uh, using one or multiple rules, talking about how we like to, how we think is the best way or a good way to craft the rules, and then the idea of how we use the rule in trial practically, i.e. throughout the entire trial or just during certain parts. So, Greg, let's kick off with the idea of one or multiple rules. And before we even get there, why don't you talk to us for a second about what a a safety rule is, which is, you know, how this was coined and sort of repurposed by Don Keenan, David Ball through the reptile and so forth. Well, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the concept of a safety rule really came to the forefront to my knowledge, through uh, Pat Malone and Rick Friedman's book, Rules of the Road. And they really set the path for, in the whole framework, for identifying rules that apply to the negligence in any given case. It could be across all the different types of lawsuits, whether it's straight up uh, motor vehicle cases, premises liability cases, or insurance bad faith, which I think was like the leading example in one of in the book and it depends on using industry standards identifying hard and fast rules in industry standards or you know it may not be an industry standard but one that is just a kind of a recognized rule of the road as they say with driving or just taking care of your property so that's was sort of the origination of it and it was really fine tuned in the reptile to really grasp and weave into that concept of focusing on the conduct of the defendant and triggering that reptile to stoke fear, essentially, in the minds of the jurors about the repeated conduct that could occur through other defendants, other individuals in their community, if they do not hold the defendant in that particular case accountable for the violation of the rule. Exactly. And I think Rick Friedman and Pat Malone you know, published that groundbreaking book, Rules of the Road, quite some time ago now. And initially, there was sort of the core concepts of what were the attributes of a rule of the road for purposes of helping us win uh, personal injury medical malpractice cases for our clients. Number one, it's a requirement that the defendant do or not do something. Number two, it has to be simple and easy for the jury to understand to counteract the defense of complexity, confusion, and, and muddying the waters like they do in every case. And uh, the rule has to be a requirement of some sort that the defense, the defendant, whomever, cannot credibly dispute it, meaning 
it has to be so kind of common sense and bedrock that were the defendant to disagree that the rule isn't a valid or applicable rule would make them look silly to do that. And it has to be another requirement of, of a good rule is that it's something that the defendant violated, that you have very clear-cut proof that they violated this particular rule in the case, so it's going to move the ball for purposes of assessing liability, that it's important in the context of the case that proof of violation of the rule is going to substantially help prove negligence in the case. It's specific to the defendant, the actions in the case, and that, it, that you know there's another requirement that essentially the rule and violation of it. And the reason why the rule exists is to prevent the kind of harm that happened to the plaintiff in this case. And I think it's that last point that the reptile, now the edge, uh, took things into a further direction. Because the original rules that were put out there were just the rule. So you could think in a medical malpractice context, the very well-known one that a doctor should not cut anything before identifying precisely what it is. And generally, that's where the rule would have stopped. And the reptile added a component to that of within the rule itself that you are framing your case around, you're also indicating that what is the harm that it caused. You call it a safety rule and you, you state the rule and then you also state because that prevents and then you sort of reference the specific type of harm in the case, which makes the rule a little bit longer. But basically, that is the gist. So with that background of kind of where it came from and, and so forth, I think over the years, there has been differing takes, Greg, on whether to use one rule, multiple rules, umbrella rule. And, and presently, given the trials that we have tried, where do you think we've kind of come down on that and, and what fits best for us? Well, I guess to begin with, we really haven't made rules the centerpiece of many of the trials that we've handled. And at first, I think we were resistant to that, and we tried to make it a rule-centered case and in every case that we tried. And I just I, I still remember the, the back and forth of, how about this rule? How about this one? And just different variations. And it was almost like a game. One of us was trying to get the winning rule that we knew would really hit home to a jury and just encapsulate the facts of the case and the deviations from the standard of care. But it was such a struggle every time. And eventually we got back to just, well, what do we need to do to prove our case through our experts? And it really wasn't about identifying a rule and making that the focus of their testimony. It was about helping the jury understand the medicine in a particular case and helping them understand the deviation, how the mistake was made and why the mistake led to the harm, the causation aspect of it. And I think just our, our recognition that, that this is complicated stuff for a jury, right? And the jury needs to understand it in order to get beyond the defenses, in order to make conclusions about causation, which are also going to be hotly contested by the defense. They need to understand the medicine and just to kind of dance around it and focus on one rule as a hallmark hasn't been the path we've followed. To answer your question, I don't think we've we have kind of gone, however, into a single rule format, and maybe you could you know, kind of explain how you how you see it the way we use it now. Yeah, that's right. So we are almost always in all of our cases, we're trying to simplify the case as much as possible. And so in doing that, while there has been, and I think that Friedman and others still 
use a multiple rule approach to trials at times where they come up with a whole host of meaningful violations. They find the rules that were violated and frame the case around numerous rules that were violated and sometimes have boards with those rules and are referencing them throughout the trial, pointing to the given rule in a, you know, a certain part of testimony or so forth to remind the jury of that violation. We, however, have, have really gotten to the point where we try, we look at the rule sort of as the case frame, in a sense, not the frame in the sense of the Mark Mandel concept that you're more likely to want to kind of reveal in closing, but the way I look at it and the way you and I have kind of gone back and forth is that it's not so much that it's going to be this incredibly important theme that we keep coming back to throughout the course of the trial, like starting every testimony with the rule. No, we don't do that. What we have typically found works for us is one rule that sort of sums up what happened in the case. And it's, I look at it as the lens that you are helping the jury see the initial story, the, the unbiased story of what happened through that lens so that they can discover for themselves on their own. So we're not sort of forcing it upon them, the error that the defendant or defendants made in the case so that they can discover it on their own, because that's a much more powerful form of persuasion when somebody has their own idea versus one that you're forcing them to accept. So you know, I think we always find that it's very helpful to really take a lot of time and we'll pull our trial lawyer friends about what did they think would be an appropriate or good rule or, or we'll throw a rule out there and have people help us kind of wordsmith it. And then we use that rule. We sort of, we open, that's one of the first things that the jury is confronted with. You know, the reason that we're here is because of a safety rule, also called the medical standard of care. And here in this case is the patient safety rule. And then we show it to them, we let them read it. And then we get into the story about what we contend happened without being overly advocating our argument. And again, trying to capitalize on that idea. But to the point that we're talking about is we don't really revisit that rule too much throughout the trial. You will oftentimes have our expert confirm the rule, why we have the rule, where did it come from, and what is the purpose of the rule, and was it violated in this case to show that, look, the rule is the medical standard of care, it was violated, and it caused the precise type of harm that happened to the, the plaintiff, and it's the precise type of harm that was supposed to, the rule was intended to prevent. But I think it depends on the case. Sometimes I think we come back to the rule if it's applicable to a particular exam, but unlike a lot of, of lawyers, we're not sitting there beating the jurors over the head with the rule usually come full circle with it. Would you say the way we work the rule into a case or a rule is almost making it the moral of the story, so to speak, whether it's a book you've read or maybe more appropriately a movie? At least when I watch things, I think like, what's the big message the writer of the screenplay or, or the director wanted to get across in this movie? And you could say that message is the moral of the story, right? It's never said overtly in the movie, or at least rarely is it said. It's It has to be subtle so that the jury or the, the viewers, if it's a movie, audience just gets it after watching the story, right? It's the moral of the story. The story tells the moral, right? Not You don't have to repeat it in the story itself. So, But then I think that's sort of, would you agree? I mean, you think that's sort of it? Well, I actually disagree a little bit in the sense, I think the moral of the story is more of that case frame concept. 
the system failure, the profits over safety that you kind of, you revealed in, you know, do your job, whatever that is. Because the moral of the story doesn't really come about until the end of the story. So I don't think that a rule is the first thing you're confronting the jury with is necessarily the moral. You're essentially establishing the common sense, simplistic standard of care that encapsulates the meaningful error in the case that hurt your person. And that that moral that you're talking about, which is an incredibly important concept that you hope resonates with the jury, is something slightly different that comes out towards the end of the trial. And sometimes you don't even know, I mean, you, you sort of know what the moral is going to be. But I do think that moral is more in line with what you know Mark Mandel would typically consider like the case frame. What's the gist of the case about in light of everything we now know about it versus a rule? We were probably right there, but maybe the better way of describing our use of a rule is what a juror would say when you ask them, well, what did you think about the case? Or why did you decide the way you decided after you've tracked them down in the hallway outside the courtroom? It's the first thing that comes out of their mouth, the first sentence. Wow, that's just a hospital that didn't follow any of its policies and procedures, right? Yeah, 100%. And <laughs> I think of it too, that if, if I were just pull someone off the street and I said our rule to them, that they would just completely accept it as, well, obviously. But at the same time, it plants the seed in the setting of a trial that, well, why is this guy mentioning this completely obvious rule that a doctor should know what he's cutting before he cuts it kind of thing? Oh, I wonder if that's what this case is about. And now this lawyer is telling me that this is the story. So let's hear what happened. And then as they start, they're thinking about that rule and they're like, oh, is this doctor going to cut something that they weren't supposed to? And then they hear the story. But then I think it's all the, all the other facts and the circumstances that all comes together to understand the why. You know what I mean? Because I don't think the rule necessarily covers the why did it happen necessarily. It's just, this is the rule, they violated it, they are negligent. And then the kind of the, the tapestry of the testimony and the evidence and so forth starts to provide the why, which I think then ties into what you're talking about of the moral or the case frame of the case. But we should talk about how we structure our, or how do we think about, you know, coming up with the rule? So yeah. from your perspective, what do you feel like is our methodology? I know I have some thoughts on what a couple of things I, I try to keep in mind. Yeah. I know your methodology and I like it. And uh, I usually defer to it if possible, but I'll let you talk about that. I, I guess the, for me, the first thing I think of is how do we distill our case to its very core? You know, we always do that in, in every case when we're preparing to try to just trim the fat and help the jury focus on the one error that really is inexcusable <laughs> without it, and kind of shutting out all the distractions of everything else that the defense is going to bring in. Where do we have the defense cut off at the past? Where do we have the best admissions, the best cross-examination from the deposition testimony in what appeals to our experts? What do our experts care the most about? Right, and What's the theme of their testimony going to be in terms of the deviations from the standard of care? Once we have all that figured out and we're ready to roll with our plan, our theory of negligence, that's where I start to think, okay, now how do we put that in the most basic terms that we could think of that sort of jive with the reptile or the edges components of a rule? How do you go about it? 
Well, I think the point you just made too in a medical malpractice case is so important in that, you know, you have to, you've got to back the rule up at some point. You have to have the jury, unless it's just the absolutely most simplistic rule, which actually ties into something that I'm going to talk about in a second about how I really try to focus my rules. But you got to make sure your medical expert, your liability standard care expert is on board with it. And sometimes, a lot of times, we'll provide them a rule and they'll sort of say, yeah, but it's not quite that, or it's a little bit different, or I would say it that way. And a lot of times they can help, but that's an important uh, consideration is making sure that your expert is going to support it. And also they're going to help you to craft a rule that is more likely to be accepted and not fought too much by the opposing standard of care expert. So that's very, very important. But for me, I think one of the most important things I'm trying to do and one of the easiest ways to demonstrate to the jury that it's not just the reason that I Brendan Lupitan or Greg Uniton says it's the rule. It's the rule because it's the law. And I always like to have my rules be tied to the jury instructions, the law in our state that the jury's going to have to judge the case by. I think you get into trouble sometimes when you come up with a rule that's really far afield from what the jury's ultimately told about. Because if they get to the end and they hear the jury instructions on how they decide the case, and it has nothing or very little to do with the actual wording within the jury instructions, then I think there's a high likelihood they're going to disregard that rule as just kind of this other thing that really wasn't dispositive in their mind about how the case should come down. And so I always, in a MedMail case, I always, always go back. I mean, how many times you reread it? The standard of care is a physician must have the same knowledge and skill and use the same care normally used in the medical profession, and they fall below that. And then it says that that have the same knowledge and skill and use the same care as others in that same medical specialty. And so you want to use, I think, that language or parts of that language as much as you can in your rules. So whether it's a doctor must know about something or doctors must use skill or the same skill or they must, whatever it is, but you want to frame it and tie it to the jury instruction rather than just having this out of nowhere type violation. Because at the end, you can say, look, you're going to hear the jury instructions and the instructions tell you that the doctor has to do this. That's what the rule is. And here's the evidence that we provided you that shows that it was clearly violated under the circumstances and caused the harm it was intended to prevent. Part of the reason why I really like that approach is because it ties in with the jury's job, right? The judge instructs the jury on the instructions that you have incorporated into a rule. And the jury needs to follow the instructions when reaching their verdict. So when they're in that room, the deliberation room, thinking about their job, they're like, well, hey, we just have to follow the instructions the judge gives us and apply those to the facts of the case. The judge isn't telling the jury, you need to understand the medicine. If you don't understand the medicine that was discussed, you have a question about one of the experts' testimony and, and what uh, hyperosmolar state means, you need to get clarification. That's not what works. That's not what happens in a trial. So the jury doesn't understand most of the medicine in medical malpractice cases, right? Maybe they'll just get little pieces here and there. So asking the jury just to focus on the jury instruction and a rule that's you know based upon the jury instruction, I think it really kind of neutralizes that concern we always have about, well, maybe the case is too complex for the jury to understand and make a decision in our client's favor. Yeah, and, and this ties into the topic we'll cover in our next podcast, but I think the way the jury instructions, at least in our state, are written 
the instructions regarding corporate liability, so claims directly against hospitals, I think lend themselves much more to a rule in the case than does the kind of more vague and amorphous jury instructions that applies for the standard of care to doctors. I mean, because the one that applies directly to doctors is just, it's more murky. It's more subject to interpretation and differences of opinion of what does it mean to use the right amount of skill? What does it mean to have the same knowledge as other people? Well, how do I know what the different knowledge is and so forth? It's just naturally, I think the doctor's jury instruction is tougher for us to show a jury how it was violated versus, you know, in Pennsylvania, you have the rules are almost written themselves by the jury instructions. You have a hospital has a duty to formulate, adopt, and enforce adequate rules and policies to ensure quality care for the patients. I mean, as long as you just slightly simplify, I mean, that was basically our rule in the Miller case when we got a, a terrific jury verdict for our client in that case. It was, we made the whole case about you got to follow your policies and especially the policies that are specifically in place to protect your patients from the harm that happened in this case. I mean, that is the exact language there. So I think the corporate negligence type cases really lend themselves to rules that are directly tied to the jury instructions. And I think the more you can link those two, the better your rule is going to be and the more useful it's going to be. So the last thing I want to talk about is just, unless you had one more thought on that, Greg. No, I was just going to ask, do you think there's a, a place for just a basic boiled down rule that talks about or that describes the standard of care, basically, and, what, and how doctors must follow the standard of care? Well, I feel like that's the umbrella rule they used to talk about, you know, the doctor or hospital must not needlessly endanger the patient. And that was determined to be too difficult for people to understand. And there was other variations of it, but I never liked the umbrella rule. I felt that it was just kind of wasting time. Like, let's just cut to the chase of what our, our specific rule of the case is. But that's just our particular preference. So the last thing I wanted to talk about as far as edge reptile rules in general in medical malpractice cases is the extent to which we have, for us, found it effective to when do we actually use the rule? When are we you know, relying on it? In your experience, like where are we? How do we use rules in our cases at this point? Well, we'll come to it, come back to it from time to time. Obviously, you know, it starts in the opening statement right off the bat, but it's not the hallmark of the opening statement. And then during direct examination of our experts, it sort of gets buried, I guess, for lack of a better description. It's once we have explained the medicine, introduced the story of actually what happened, the treatment in question and we're getting into the violations of the standard of care, and through those violations, then we kind of just intersperse among that discussion of the violation, whether there was a violation of the rule. But we don't point out, well, is this a rule in medicine, right? And we just, we don't take it that far because we, I think we know that in the practice of healthcare, doctors aren't thinking, oh, I got to remember that safety rule or come back to haunt me at trial. That's not how the rules of medicine and the guidelines uh, are framed in clinical care in general. That's not how it works. I just wonder sometimes if there is a benefit to constantly coming back to it. For example, constantly starting each examination of every witness with that idea of the rule and that everybody agrees that this is the rule and then demonstrating through all these different witnesses that it was violated and or it was because the rule was violated that the harm happened. I mean, at the 
presently, what I typically find us doing is we talk about the rule in opening and because I really just use it as that frame to set up the story and so forth to kind of capture the jury's attention about what the case is like, then you typically cover it with our expert. And then in most instances, we don't address it until we close. And then in closing, we said, you know, remember what this case is about. It's about the rule. But sometimes I wonder, we worry that, well, if we're constantly talking about the rule, we're talking about the rule and all these exams that you always hear these things like the jury, they get sick and tired of lawyers who are repeating themselves or constantly saying something. On the other hand, you are reiterating your theme and constantly bringing it back to what the core issue of the case is. And maybe there is some benefit to that. So I think it's something you always have to, to kind of to weigh, because I think in some cases we do, the rule does come up with, say, you're crossing the defendant doctor and you're bringing the case back to that. As I'm talking about this, that's why, you know, say a focus group's important to understand, does that rule that you've come up that you think is the key rule in the case, does it really move the needle for you? Does it move the ball forward for your case, for your client with the jury? Or is it like, yeah, I heard it once, but the case is just the story of the case. And it's not all about that. And you don't want to turn the jury off by constantly coming back to that issue. But I think it's worked well for us the way that we do it, but there's always room for improvement. And you know what I worry about though, in our med mal cases with overemphasizing a rule and constantly coming back to it, I worry that we're playing into the defense's hand. And in doing so by almost making it about courtroom medicine, right? You know, I've heard that defense from some medical malpractice defense lawyers. Oh, the plaintiffs are trying to give you courtroom medicine with their basic rules and their catchy phrases. That's not the way the real world of healthcare works. And as we'll probably talk about it in another podcast, complexity is a friend of the defense, right? They can want to make it as complex as possible. And we, of course, we do want to simplify things, but I also fear that. By using a rule too much, we are oversimplifying again and playing into the defense's hand of saying, look, like you can't oversimplify medicine this way. So I feel like we have to spend more time meeting the defense head on, you know, rather than focusing on a on a basic rule that doesn't really apply in the real world of medicine. Yeah, but I think you do that several ways. You talk to your expert, you make sure that they're 100% on board, that everybody's going to agree that this is a basic tenet of safe medicine. Number two, you address that issue in your opening ahead of time. But look, this is the rule. Everybody's going to agree it's a rule, but I bet defense counsel is going to stand up and tell you that, oh no, medicine is so complicated and so murky and difficult, and this is just too simple like TV medicine, and you head them off at the pass a bit. And number three, I think that there is a place for going, taking to task the defense expert, the defense doctor about the rule. I mean, hopefully you've come up with a rule that they can't really, what's, you know, that, like what we talk about, what are the keys to a good rule? The defense can't credibly disagree with it. So I think you undermine that, I, that argument of TV or courtroom medicine versus reality, the messy reality by confronting everybody and then, yeah, okay, sure, everything's messy and difficult and so forth, but you agree this is a rule. I mean, this is something you have to follow. They might give you a yeah, but, or a qualification, but I think if you get your rule set up the right way, the point will be made with the jury that putting aside all the, the mudding of the water that the defense likes to do, that is the rule. That is something that they have to follow and adhere to to, to protect patients. 
Yeah. So on that note, let me finish with a very relevant trial tip of the day, which comes from my trial Bible, the book I go to and reread every time I am getting ready for trial, which is Rick Friedman's On Becoming a Trial Lawyer. And he says, I cannot emphasize this point strongly enough. If anything is remotely close to a formula for effective trial advocacy, it is that the simpler the explanation or story, the more likely the jury is to believe it. And that's right on point with what we were talking about today. And if there's ever, ever a question of, are we oversimplifying the case? Just reread that. Simpler story wins. So, all right, Greg. All right. Good show. On to the next one. Yep. Good chatting as always. Talk to you later. All right. Thanks for tuning in to Trial and Medical Error. We hope our discussions have equipped you with actionable insights to lift your clients above the hurdles of medical malpractice litigation. Ready to refer or collaborate on MedMal in catastrophic injury cases? Visit our attorney referral page at pamedmal.com forward slash refer. See you in the next episode.